G'day, 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 and welcome everyone. That's our resident scaredy cat, Kate. And that's the horror junkie, Dominic. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about some scary stuff. The sort of fear your asshole knows about. As always, subscribe, rate, and review us. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Shit and Bricks Podcast. All right, drop your dax, pop a squat, and let's get into it. Well, hi, Kate. Hi, Dominic. How are you? <laughs> Cheers. I love you that you're having a big glass of wine as we start. <laughs> I only have red wine glasses and I'm not, I don't discriminate. So if I have a, a technical red wine glass, I'm still going to pop a Pinot Grigio in it. <laughs> no arguments here. I just watched that uh, Shit's Creek episode where... David <laughs> talks about the fact that he likes red and white wine and is, yes. it not, is known to enjoy a rosé every now and again. Exactly. I loved that scene. That was so good. But yes, absolutely. Having a wine, if anyone else is currently having a wine whilst listening, cheers. Um, and if you're not having one, maybe it's early in the morning. It's never too early for a wine. Yeah, have one. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Last week or last episode, you were explaining that you had a little accident and that you had hurt your arm. Is it, How are you feeling? Is it better? The arm is healing nicely. I've figured out a way to cook, wipe my butt, have a shower, do all the, you know, adult things one should do to stay clean and fed. Perfect. So that's a win. That's a win. I think you're ticking big, big, bo- big boxes, big goals. Yeah, it's been a day. <laughs> have another sip, please. Already starting. I have promised this is my first glass of wine. I promise. <laughs> no judgments here. <laughs> and you're well? I am doing very well. It's been a uh, yeah busy couple of days, but I'm excited to, as always, to sit and, um, and hear your story uh, that you're going to tell today. So bring it on. Let's jump in. But before we do, I do want to give a quick little shout shout out to our pod podcasting partners in crime. I guess that's the best way to say it. Yeah. Um, you may have noticed last episode, listeners, that there was a little ad promo for another podcast, Horror Roulette. And Nick and M are some good friends of ours. They're not in Australia. They're based out of the States, I believe. But they have a podcast, which you should definitely go check out, Horror Roulette. And it's an awesome idea. They pick a word of the week. You know, they use a roulette game, I assume, some sort of app. And it it, uh, it dictates a word that they have to go and then find a story that relates to that word. And they're just hilarious. They're, they're so similar to us. I really appreciate listening to the episodes once a week. Um, so big shout out to Nick and M. Thanks for sharing our podcast with your listeners and uh, vice versa for those that are listening to ours go check out horror roulette you will not be disappointed so absolutely yeah. yep no we love our little uh yeah horror buddies so thank you very much yeah to horror roulette and we're stoked to have some communication with people because obviously yeah we're still new to this so it's really nice to um yeah to hear from other podcasters i was listening to a podcast the other day and they're up to episode you know 340 Mm. and this is episode 19 for us so it's really nice so early in the piece to make those connections and yeah it's been awesome so huge shout out to the horror roulette guys we love you little little podcasting boobies we are yeah okay so let's get into this story because it is I think, and I say this every episode, I think it's the best fucking story I've ever done. Excellent. 
<laughs> I did get a text from you earlier today saying this is the best fucking story I've done. So yeah. <laughs> I can testify to that. No pressure, but it literally has everything. It has got a murder. It has mm-hmm. got mystery. And then Great. I am following through on my promise from previous weeks that I'm even going to dabble in a little bit of the supernatural. So I'm going to share a version that I find really, really scary. So stay till the end to hear that piece. I certainly will. I promise. I'll be here till the end. Okay, good. Thank you, Kate. You're welcome. (laughs) 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 That's a lie. Okay, so this week's episode, obviously, you've just clicked the button on your podcasting streaming service, so you know what it's about, but I'm going to say it anyway. It is the Velisica or Velisca, I don't know how you pronounce it. I'm going to say it however I like, so suck it. Um, the <laughs> Velisca Axe Murder House. So it's probably one of the most famous stories ever told, but, you know, I'm going to retell it in the good old Aussie fashion way. So I love here- it. Here we go. Now, the Moore House in Villisca, uh, this is set in 1912. What else happened in 1912, Kate? Oh, my gosh. Um, I was born. <laughs> no, it's a famous The Titanic. <laughs> the Titanic, our favourite. The, the Titanic, yes. The Titanic. Oh, gosh. Do you know, I was just listening as well. It was another shout-out for a podcast, but this one doesn't need a shout-out. They're doing just fine. But Hollywood Crime Scene, I've just finished the four-part Titanic series so it's yeah I, straight away it gives me <laughs> gives me tingles the titanic i love you i also love know it. it's titanic for anyone don't write in yeah. don't write in <laughs> now the moore house is one of the town's larger and better appointed properties and it still stands today and has been turned into the Velisca's premier tourist attraction Ooh! for a price visitors can stay in the house overnight and there is obviously no shortage of interested parties. So Yeah. Would you say? Well, let me get through the story, Kate, and okay, I will ask sorry. you. I would totally say, but... Okay, uh, sure. But uh, that might not be a, <laughs> a good sign for you. <laughs> okay, great. I already hate it. Bring it on. All right, here we go. <laughs> Let's get into it. So shortly after midnight on June 10th, 1912... A stranger hefting an axe lifted the latch on the back door of a two-story timber house in the little... I know, you love a timber house. I do love a timber house. (laughs) A two-story timber house in the little Iowa town of Villisca. The door was not locked. Crime was not the sort of thing you worried about in a modestly prosperous Midwest settlement of no more than 2,000 people. All were known to one another by sight. And the visitor was able to slip inside silently and close the door behind him. Then, according to a reconstruction attempted by the town coroner next day, he took an oil lamp from a dresser, removed the chimney and placed it out of the way under a chair. He bent the wick in two to minimise the flame, lit the lamp and turned it down so low it cast only the faintest glimmer in the sleeping house. Still carrying the axe, the stranger walked past one room in which two girls, ages 12 and 9, lay sleeping and slipped up the narrow wooden stairs that led to two other bedrooms. He ignored one in which four more young children were sleeping and crept into the room in which 43-year-old Joe Moore lay next to his wife, Sarah. 
raising the axe high above his head, so high it gouged the ceiling. The man brought the flat of the blade down on the back of Joe Moore's head, crushing his skull and probably killing him instantly. Oh, surely. And then he struck Sarah a blow before she had time to wake or register his presence. That's not a way that I want to wake up. No. You know, like some people do enjoy waking up with a blow, but not one to the head and not with an axe. <laughs> it's quite an alarm clock system. <laughs> Goodness me. All right. Now, leaving the couple dead or dying, the killer went next door and used the axe, Joe's own axe, probably taken from where it had been left in the coal shed to kill the four more children as they slept. Once again, there is no evidence that Herman, 11, Catherine, 10, Boyd, 7, or Paul, 5, woke before they died. Nor did the assailant or any of the four children make sufficient noise to disturb Catherine's two friends, Lena and Ina Stillinger, as they slept downstairs. The killer then descended the stairs and took his axe to the Stillinger girls, the elder of whom may finally have awakened in an instant before she too was murdered. Busy. Busy night. It's a busy night. Yep. Got Mm. you. He's got things to do, but he took his time. What? Went through all, past all of those bedrooms. Quiet as a church mouse. Now, why a mouse? Church mouse? Yeah. I don't know. Let us know. Who knows? Maybe they've got some <laughs> sins they're trying to scamper away from. <laughs> if we're quiet, they won't notice us. <laughs> plenty, of, plenty of bloody sins in church. Oh, absolutely. All right. Now, what happened next marked the Vasilica killings as truly peculiar and still sends shivers down the spine a century after the fact. The Axeman went back upstairs and systematically reduced the heads of all six moors to a bloody pulp, striking Joe alone an estimated 30 times and leaving the faces of all six members of the family unrecognisable. Oh, goodness gracious. Very violent, right? Yeah. Unnecessary. He then drew up the bedclothes to cover Joe and Sarah's shattered heads placed a gauze undershirt over Herman's face and a dress over Catherine's, covered Boyd and Paul as well, and finally administered the same terrible post-mortem punishment to the girls downstairs before touring touring the house and ritually hanging clothes over every mirror and piece of glass in it. Wow. Remember that, okay? Okay, I'm writing it down. At some point, the killer also took a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the icebox, wrapped it in a towel and left it on the floor of the downstairs bedroom close to the short piece of keychain that did not apparently belong to the Moors. He seems to have stayed inside the house for quite some time, filling a bowl with water and some later reports said washing his bloody hands in it. Now, sometime before 5 a.m., he abandoned the lamp at the top of the stairs and left as silently as he had come, locking the doors behind him. Taking the house keys, the murderer vanished as the Sunday sun rose red in the sky. Oh, my gosh. This is like the most messed up, like Goldilocks and the Three Bears vibe, you know? Mm. 
like goes in and you know yeah far out okay busy night certainly a busy night all right let's dig a little deeper shall we Mm-hmm. Lena and Ina, or Ina, Ina Stillinger. Lena, the elder of the girls, was the only one who may have awoken before she died. Now, the moors were not discovered until several hours later when a neighbour, worried about the absence of any sign of life in the normally boisterous household, telephoned Joe's brother, Ross, and asked him to investigate. Because mm. there's six kids, right? So there was two in one room and four in the other... And then the mum and dad, is that correct? Did I miss That's some? That's correct, yes. So six kids, yeah. So if you're like the neighbour, you're like, where are all these, where are all the children? That's far too many children yeah. to have and they'd make noise. Yeah, I believe Russ was busy trying to fall in love with Rachel or I don't know, maybe Joey came over. Got Phoebe you, was yeah. Singing Ch- a song. Yeah, Chandler was annoyed about yeah. his job and yeah, I get you. Okay, got you. Yeah. But trusty Russ is coming to the rescue. Excellent. Bring it on, Russ. Now, Ross found a key on his chain that opened the front door, but barely entered the house before he came rushing out again, calling for Velisca's marshal, Hank Horton. Here's a who? (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That was good. I like that. Shout out to Dr. Zeus. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Zeus. Paging, Dr. Zeus. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now that set in train a sequence of events that destroyed what little hope there may have been of gathering useful evidence from the crime scene. Horton brought along Dr. J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Hoff and Wesley Ewing, the minister of the Moore's Presbyterian congregation. They were followed by the county coroner, L.A. Lindquist, and a third doctor, F.S. Williams, who became the first to examine the bodies and estimate a time of death. When a shaken Dr. Williams emerged, he cautioned members of the growing crowd outside, don't go in there, boys, you'll regret it until the last day of your life. Wow. So did did the neighbour go in and has seen, you know, the first of the maybe the bedrooms or something and then just bolted out and called Horton, here's a who? The the sheriff, the marshal? The neighbour has called... The brother Ross to come oh, and investigate. Sorry, Ross, and Ross was the first one. Ross to has enter. got him. Gotcha. Okay, but so Ross has seen something. We don't something. know what, but has seen. Yeah, right. And then and has run out. Has called the marshal. Yeah, he's like, I don't want to borrow this. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense based on <laughs> what happened to those poor people. It does, but it's okay. important to to recognise that there's. We've just listed about seven people. I think who have mm. gone in and contaminated a crime scene, right? Yeah, so they've this just traced around. This is 1912. Yeah, muddy boots. They just kind of popped their glass of water on the table and, you know, maybe grabbed a bit of bacon that was melting on the floor from the icebox or, right. Exactly. Gotcha. Green eggs and ham it was. Okay. <laughs> paging Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss, if you're in the building, paging you. Now, many ignored the advice as many as a hundred curious neighbours and townspeople trampled as they passed through the house, scattering fingerprints and in one case removing fragments of Joe Moore's skull as a macabre what? keepsake. Hang on, so the public are just welcome into this home? Mm-hmm. What the heck? As if you would want, like that's not, yeah, oh my gosh. Do you know who would be upset about this? Gil Grissom, CSI. He would be absolutely ropeable. Could you imagine if he walked into this crime scene? He would 
Oh, we'd not be happy about that. Yeah, CSI Iowa is not happening anytime soon. <laughs> Don't CSI. Yeah! Yeah, CSI Villisca, that actually sounds really good. but It actually sounds really cool. It kind of mm. sounds like a good name for like a band or like a drag queen or something like that. It's a good name. I like Villisca. I like a V and a, like a K or a C. It's cool. Yeah. Okay, so CSI Villisca is going poorly. Everybody in the town is traipsing through. They're taking pieces of his brain and stuff as a keepsake. Mm. Right. So the murders convulse Villisca particularly after a few clumsy and futile attempts to search the surrounding countryside for a transient killer failed to unearth a likely suspect. The simple truth was that there was no sign of the murderer's whereabouts. He might have vanished back into uh, into their own home nearby, equally given a head start of up to five hours in a town of which nearly 30 trains called every day, he might easily have made his good escape yeah bloodhounds were I mean, tried yeah with i was just success. gonna say yeah yeah with five hours up your sleeve i mean you sort of think about it i know that we could jump on a train and yeah we could be in new south wales or south australia in in a matter of hours you know maybe not mm-hmm. five but certainly far away from there so it's a pretty decent head start so yeah so they tried good old-fashioned bloodhounds again let's just remind ourselves it's 1912 here so you mm. know it's not like they're going to get Bronnie Bishop in a helicopter to go searching for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no, yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no cop cars and their searchlights and the bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. makes the it Marvel hard. movies haven't been made yet, so there's no superheroes. <laughs> Damn it. They're handicapped. Um, so anyway, <laughs> bloodhounds had no effect. And after there was little of uh, little for the townspeople to do but gossip, swap theories and strengthen their locks by sundown there was not a dog to be bought in Villisca at any price so Mm. you know we've gone from a town that nobody locks their doors everyone knows everybody and within a matter of hours everyone's just gone into protect mode Mm, it's the rapid antigen test of 1912 (laughs) every dog every dog in the neighborhood (laughs) <laughs> buy him you can't get him from woolies you can't get him from the shell coles express it's a bloody nightmare <laughs> all right let's get into the suspects shall we please we love suspects a I whodunit do. yeah it's a bit of a whodunit is it was there a butler was there ever a butler in any no. part of this is no. oh okay all right sorry i'm a bit early for butlers aren't i <laughs> maybe 1930s 20s 30s i'm probably a little bit too too early for butlers I don't quite think they had the money for a butler, but in True. your mind, you can you let me know. <laughs> so Jeeves got questioned. <laughs> Jeeves said he didn't do it, and then he was released. Done. Yeah. Okay, I'm moving on. <laughs> All right, Frank Jones, suspect number one. Now, Donna Jones, daughter-in-law of Iowa State Senator Frank Jones, was widely rumoured in Villisca to have had an affair with Joe Moore, the husband who's been murdered mm-hmm. first. Right, okay. The most obvious suspect may have been Frank Jones, a tough local businessman and state senator who was also a prominent member of Villisca's Methodist Church. Now, Edgar Eppley, the leading authority on the murders, reports that the town quickly split along religious lines. The Methodists insisting on Jones's innocence and the Moore's Presbyterian congregation convinced of his guilt. 
Mm. Though, though never formally charged with any involvement in the murders, Jones became the subject of a grand jury investigation and a prolonged campaign to prove his guilt, which destroyed his political career. Oh, absolutely. That's some bad PR. Mm-hmm. Did you take an axe to a family of eight? Not sure you're going to be running for president. Not recently. Mm. Or maybe you could recently, but not in 1912. (laughs) Now, many townspeople were certain he used his considerable influence to have the case against him quashed. There were at least two compelling reasons to believe that Jones had nursed a hatred of Joe Moore. First, the dead man had worked for him for seven years, becoming the star salesman of Jones Jones's farm equipment business. But Moore had left in 1907 dismayed, perhaps by his boss's insistence of hours of 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week. And oh, that's set a him- no for me. Yeah, exactly. And he set himself up as a head-to-head rival, taking the vulnerable John Deere account with him. Wow, John Deere. Mm-hmm. Now, worse, he was also believed to have slept with Jones's vivacious daughter-in-law, a local beauty whose numerous affairs were well known in town thanks to her astonishingly indiscreet habit of arranging trysts over the phone at a time when all calls in Villisca had to be placed through an operator. Okay, poor form. <laughs> if you're going to have an affair... Oh, give me a break. Betsy on the yeah. other line connecting you. She's not going to oh, keep her mouth shut. Exactly. I just, when you were explaining that, I just had this idea that she just went into, obviously, again, we're way too early for diners and things like that. But I just imagine her just walking into like a pay phone and be like, oh, yeah, doll, I won't tell anybody. Just meet me at the hotel. And yeah, no one will know that we're going to have a route. Mm, exactly. <laughs> just watching. Now, by 1912, relations between Jones and the Moor had grown had grown so cold that they began to cross the street to avoid each other, an mm. ostentatious sign of hatred in such a minuscule community. Absolutely, gosh, that's a yeah. That's so a that's good one. suspect number one, Frank Jones. Okay, Frank Jones, uno, numero uno, unero mumo. Yep, cool. Yeah. I've had a stroke. Um, Continue. Um, 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 um. <laughs> William Mansfield, suspect number two. Few people in Villisca believe that a man of Jones's age and eminence, he was 57 in 1912, Mm. would have swung the axe himself. But in some minds, he was certainly capable of paying someone else to wipe out the moor and Ah, his family. Got you. And this is where Billy comes in. Now, that was the theory of James Wilkerson. Sounds (gasps) Ooh, (laughs) stop it. (laughs) I've never been to Iowa, but you never know. And plus the surname is actually not the same. So, but close uh, enough. Close enough. (laughs) Now, the theory of James Wilkerson, an agent of the renowned Burns Detective Agency, who in 1916 announced that Jones had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield to murder the man who had humiliated him. Mm. Wilkerson, who made enough of a nuisance of himself to derail Jones's attempts to secure re-election to the state Senate, and who eventually succeeded in having a grand jury convened to consider the evidence he had gathered, was able to show that Mansfield had the right sort of background for the job. In 1914, he was the chief suspect in the axe murders of his wife, <gasps> her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. Stop it. Mm. 
Well, that yeah. puts him right. Obviously, come on, Mansfield, straight to the top of the suspect list, as if you'd even go to Frank Jones. Come on. Now, unfortunately for Wilkerson, Mansfield Uh-oh. turned out to have a cast iron alibi for the Velisca killings. Bullshit. Payroll records showed that he had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders and he was released for lack of evidence. Mm. Now, that did not stop many locals, including Ross Moore, the brother, and Joe Stillinger, the father of the two Stillinger girls, from believing in Jones's guilt. The rancor caused by Wilkerson lingered on in the town for years. I can imagine. Alrighty. Okay. I mean, that's too much of a coincidence, though, Dom. Like, Mansfield to just... I'm working in Chicago, Illinois. I am doing my thing. Uh, but I did axe murder someone before, like my own kid, also my wife. But I definitely didn't do this axe murder. It's... I don't know. Too much of a coinkidding. But then again, maybe they're a little bit short on weapons in 1912. They don't have as many options. Maybe an axe was just the, the cool option of the time. It was the trendy murder weapon. True. Yeah. Well, we're not done yet. We have more suspects. Okay, bring it on. Now, Reverend Lynn <gasps> Kelly. Uh-oh, okay. There isn't a butler, but there is a priest or a reverend. There's a priest. I love this. This is like a, yeah, a more uh, fucked up version of Clue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We don't know who the suspect was, but it was in the house with the axe. We've got those two. We just need to work out who it was. Yeah. Now, for others, though, there was a far stronger and far stranger candidate for the axe man. His name was Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Hmm. Just loving the name. (laughs) Kelly? Kelly? No, it just reminded me of Jackie Kennedy. Okay. Yeah, it's good. And he was an English immigrant a preacher and a known sexual deviant with well-recorded <gasps> mental problems. Uh-oh. Now, just a sidebar, there has been some research done that the axe as a murder weapon is closely linked to mental illness. It is really? the weapon of choice of people who suffer from quite severe mental health issues. Um, Crime and Punishment, a book you should definitely read goes into it a lot more but uh yeah just wanted to flag that as a a little side fun fact i mean i know that i need to do my own homework but does it say much about why in that in that book no yes it does like i don't have it here but uh yes sure all right i will certainly do my own homework i was just trying to cheat there so i didn't have to read there's a lot of history i guess i'll have to do a lot of history of what what the axe represents what it's used for release of anger and tension lots of things so okay all right so we've got rep the reverend sexual deviant with well-recorded mental problems he okay. had been in the town on the night of the murders and freely admitted that he had left on a dawn train just before the bodies were discovered interesting there were things about kelly that made him seem an implausible suspect not least that he stood only five foot two and weighed 119 pounds okay But in other ways, he fit the bill. He was left-handed, and coroner Lindquist had determined from an examination of blood spatters, and we all know how reliable blood spatter is. Especially in 1812. Well, the people that pretend to know that they are, you know, experts in blood splattering. Um, (laughs) 
from an examination of blood spatters in the murder house that the killer probably swung his axe that way, left-handed. Now, Kelly was obsessed with sex. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's new? Um, yep. And had been caught peering into windows in Villisca two days before the murders. Cheeky. In 1914, living in Winner, South Dakota, he would advertise for a girl stenographer to do confidential work. And that ad placed in the Omaha World Herald would also specify that the successful candidate must be willing to pose as model. Ooh. Now, when a young woman named Jessamine Hodgson responded, she received in return a letter described by a judge as so obscene lewd, lascivious and filthy as to be offensive to this honourable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. Oh, so they was, it was stricken from the record because it was too filthy. Too Goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Now, amongst his milder instructions, Kelly told Hodgson that she would be required to type in the nude. Kelly later confessed to murdering the family only to recant and claim oh. police brutality. Oh, I thought we had him. Okay. Mm. Gotcha. So he was beaten up because he was a bit of a perv and said he did it and then said, no, I didn't do it. Look, we all we have quite a lot of history of false confessions in this sort of subject matter. So we mm. can't, un, you know, take away any sort of weight to the potential of that. But it's, he's an interesting, he's a, he's a wild card, I like yeah, to Yeah, he is a bit, definitely, definitely. So this is the reverend. This is, that's, mm. that he did that with the lady in the, type in the nude and stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right, all right. Now, last two suspects are interesting, and I'm going to elaborate a little bit further, but one I want to mention right now is Henry Lee Moore. Now, Henry Lee Moore is not related to the Moore family that was murdered. Okay. Right, I was going to say, I was like, oh, hang on a moment. This might be a brother, an uncle or something. Okay, got you. It's not related. Okay. Not related. Now, Henry Henry Lee Moore is a convicted axe murderer, and he was the suspect favoured by the Department of Justice, Special Agent Mm -hmm. Matthew McCleary, who believed he committed a total of nearly 30 similar murders across the Midwest in 1911 and 1912. Okay, fits the time. And there is another axe murderer who was operating at this time named Paul Mueller. So let's get into the investigation a little and then we're going to explore these last two suspects. Okay. Now, oh my goodness, this is such a good episode and I don't care if it goes too long because it's just, (laughs) I'm on fucking fire and I'm loving this. Killing it. You're killing it. Now, the investigation. The investigation soon made plain that there were links between Lynn Kelly and the Moore family, the Reverend and the Moore family. Most Mm -hmm. sinister for those who believed in the little preacher's guilt was the fact that Kelly had attended the Children's Day service held at Villisca's Presbyterian Church on the evening of the murders. The service had been organised by Sarah Moore and her children, together with Lena and Ina Stillinger, had played prominent parts dressed up in the Sunday in their Sunday best. Many in Villisca were willing to believe that Kelly had spotted the family in the church and become obsessed with them, and mm. that he had spied on the Moore household as, as he went to bed that evening. 
The idea that the killer had lain in wait for the Moors to go to sleep was supported by some evidence. Linquist's investigation had revealed a depression in some bales of hay stored in the family barn and a knothole through which the murderer could have watched the house while reclining in comfort. Mm. That Lena Stillinger had been found wearing no underwear and with her nightdress drawn up past her waist did suggest a potential for a sexual motive. But the doctors found no evidence of that sort of sexual assault. Okay. It took time for the case against Kelly to get anywhere, but in 1917, that's five years, another grand jury finally assembled to hear the evidence linking him with Lena's murder. At first glance, the case against Kelly seemed compelling. He had sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia. An elderly couple recalled meeting the preacher when he alighted from a 5.19am train from Velisca that June 10th and being told that the gruesome murders had been committed in the town. A hugely incriminating statement since the preacher had left Velisca three hours before the killings were even discovered. How did he know? How did he know? And he's got, I mean, he's sending his bloody clothes out. Like, why are his clothes bloody? What's going on here? Okay. It also emerged that Kelly had returned to Villisca a week later and shown great interest in the murders, even posing as a Scotland Yard detective to obtain a tour of the Moore house. Mm, okay. We all know how people like to revisit their crime scenes, don't we? Yes. Yes. I personally, I mean, I love it. It's my favourite <laughs> hobby. Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, there is a morbid fascination with, uh, yeah, people who do like to revisit. Relive, Ooh. yeah. Now, arrested Relive. In, yeah, exactly. Now, arrested in 1917, the Englishman was repeatedly interrogated and eventually signed a confession to the murder in which he stated, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe and went into the house and killed them. This he later recanted and the couple who claimed to have spoken to him on the morning after the murders, they changed their story as well. Oh. With little left to tie him firmly to the killings, the first grand jury to hear Kelly's case hung from 11 to 1 in favour of refusing to indict him and a second panel freed him. Wowee. Wild okay, card. so he's out of there. Yeah, wildcard, axe murderer, peep show, reverend is out of there for the moment. Okay. Mm. So let's get into those two that I mentioned previously. Yep. Henry Lee Moore and Paul Mueller. Now, there were more than just one axe murders happening at this time in American history. Great. It was on brand. It was trending. Hashtag axe. Like it was all all going up. Got you. Okay. Do you need an axe to wake up in the morning? (laughs) There was an axe dance on TikTok. It was a thing. It was a vibe. Now, I'm not going to go specifically into both Paul Mueller and Henry Lee Moore just themselves, but it's more about the general vibe of what was happening at this time. But it's good to be mm-hmm. aware that these two were operating around this time in the States. Okay. So our alternatives. 
Roland and Anna Hudson were the victims of an axe murderer in Paola, Kansas, just five days before the Velisk killings. Perhaps the strongest evidence that both Jones and Kelly were most likely innocent came not from Velisca itself, but from other communities in the Midwest, where in 1911 and 1912 a bizarre chain of axe murders seemed to suggest that a transient serial killer was at work. Mm. Now, for those listening, when we use the word transient, you may have heard of the word hobo, which is uh, a controversial phrase or term and uh, sometimes considered disrespectful though it is not it's actually anyway I won't go into the history of it but go educate yourself I I was gonna say because I would never like as I would use hobo in that term but I would not have picked that it's like a controversial term but okay has been we can we can talk after our (laughs) we we can go into depth after our pod class and race stuff in there can be a bit sensitive but anyway sure transient just means someone that is rarely ever in one spot is constantly moving and yep. the rail system at this time was a very easily accessible way for people to get around that did not have money. So. Yeah. Would they just like run up alongside and just jump into one of the open carriages? That's what I'm, vis- I'm visualizing from movies yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Constantly moving and, and following work wherever it may be. Mm-hmm. Now, the researcher Beth Klingensmith, my goodness, the names. Klingensmith, great. Yep. My mate. Love it. Uh, They have suggested that as many as 10 incidents that occurred close to railway tracks, but in locations as far apart as Rainer, Washington and Monmouth, Illinois, might form part of this chain. And in several cases, there are striking similarities to the Velisca crime. So let's get into that. The pattern first pointed out in 1913 by Special Agent Matthew McClary of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation which is a forerunner of the FBI, began Mm -hmm. with the murder of a family of six in Colorado Springs in September 1911 and continued with two further incidents in Monmouth, where the murder weapon was actually a pipe, and in Ellsworth, Kansas. Three and five people died in those attacks and two more in Paola, Kansas, where someone murdered Roland Hudson and his unfaithful wife just four days before the killings in Villisca. Now, as far as McClary was concerned, the slaughter culminated in December 1912 with the brutal murders of Mary Wilson and her daughter Georgia Moore in Columbia, Missouri. Another Moore spelt exactly the same way, but not related. Oh, cool. Excellent. Because I love that, especially with a podcast where it's like, you know, I'm doing a diagram of all the moors, but that's fine. Yeah. No problems. Now, McCleary's theory was that Henry Lee Moore, George's son and a convict with a history of violence, was responsible for the whole series. Okay. It is not necessary to believe that Henry Lee Moore was a serial killer to consider that the string of Midwest axe murders have intriguing similarities that may tie the Velisca massacre to other crimes. Now, Henry Lee Moore is now rarely considered a good suspect. He was certainly an unsavory character, released from a reformatory in Kansas shortly before the axe murders began, arrested in Jefferson City, Missouri, shortly after they ended, and eventually convicted of the Columbia murders, but his motive in that case was greed, he'd planned to obtain the deeds to his family house, 
and is rare for a wandering serial killer to return home and kill his own family. Mm. Now, nonetheless, analysis of the sequence of murders and several others that McClary did not consider yield some striking comparisons. All right. Now, Blanche Wayne of Colorado Springs may have been the first victim of a Midwest serial murderer. She was killed in her bed in September 1911 by an axe man who heaped bedclothes on her and stopped to wash his hands, leaving the weapon at the scene. Ooh, okay, got now, you. Is, Washed this, his hands. This is Paul Mueller, okay? Yeah, okay. Potentially. Now, the use of an axe in almost every case was perhaps not so remarkable in itself, while there certainly was an unusual concentration of axe killings in the Midwest at this time, yeah, almost every family in rural districts owned such an implement and often left it lying in their yard. Yeah, it would be easy to grab if you're just, especially if you're transient and you're just wandering from house to house, that would be a common, you know, weapon that can cause some serious damage just lying next to the woodshed. Mm-hmm. I can visualise it. As such, it might be considered a weapon of convenience. Similarly, the fact that the victims died asleep in their beds was likely a consequence of the choice of weapon. An axe is nearly useless against a mobile target, yet other similarities among the crimes are much harder to explain away. In eight of the ten cases, the murder weapon was found abandoned at the scene of the crime. In as many as seven, there was a railway line nearby. Mm-hmm. Okay. In, th- in three, including Velisca, the murders took place on a Sunday night. Just as significant, perhaps, four of the cases, Paula, Velisca, Rainier, and a solitary murder that took place in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, featured killers who covered their victims' faces. Right. Th- three murders had washed at the scene, and at least five of the killers had lingered in the murder house. Perhaps most striking of all, two other homes, those of victims of the Ellsworth and Powler murders, had been lit by lamps in which the chimney had been laid aside and the wick bent down just as it had been in the Liska. That's pretty conclusive. It's very specific, isn't it? Yeah. Now, whether or not all these murders really were connected remains a considerable puzzle. Some pieces of evidence fit patterns, but others do not. How, for example, might a stranger to Velisca have so unerringly located Joe and Sarah Moore's bedroom by low lamplight, ignoring the children's rooms until the adults were safely dead? On the other hand, the use of the flat of the axe blade to strike the fatal initial blows does suggest the murderer had previous experience. Any deep cut made with the sharp edge of the blade was more likely to result in the axe becoming lodged in the wound, making it far riskier to attack a sleeping couple. Absolutely. That's, yeah, far out. Okay, so you've got to hit them with the flat side because otherwise this will get stuck in your skull and that's that's awkward because then your wife will wake up and then, you know, how embarrassing if I'm struggling with my axe (laughs) lodged in your husband's head. (laughs) Whoops. Okay, I get this. It's getting, yeah, all right. So they needed to have done this before. 
we're getting quite specific here. I really yeah. love the way in which limited resources, limited skill and ability, serial killers were not a thing back then, by the way. Let's just make that really yeah. clear. The term serial killer was not in effect and around in 1912. So no. no one had ever considered that there might be a single person responsible for multiple events. Yeah. It's really important to remember that. Now... In addition, the Paola murders have striking similarities with Velisca, aside from the killer's use of a carefully adapted lamp. In both cases, for example, odd incidents occurred the same night that suggest the killer may, may have attempted to strike twice. Now, in Velisca, at 2.10am on the night of the murder, telephone operator Zenia Delaney heard strange footsteps approaching up the stairs and an unknown hand tried to, uh, had tried her locked door. While in Paola, a second family was awakened in the dead of night by a sound that turned out to be a lamp chimney falling to the floor. Ooh. Rising hurriedly, the occupants of that house were in time to see an unknown man escaping through a window. Oh, no thank you. Mm. I mean, it's good he was leaving, but I'm unnerved that he was in my house at all. Mm. Now, perhaps the spookiest of all such similarities, however, was the strange behaviour of the unknown murderer of William Showman, his wife Pauline, and their three children in Ellsworth, Kansas, in October 1911. In the Ellsworth case, not only was a chimneyless lamp used to illuminate the murder scene, but a little heap of clothing had been placed over the showman's telephone. Now, in one of the articles I found, they showed a picture of the Western Electric Model 317 telephone. It is one of the most popular on sale in the Midwest in 1911-1912. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to look all that closely to notice that the phone generally looks like it has human features. Two big bells for eyes, nostril where the mouthpiece went phone underneath for a mouth it, it it very much looks human in nature or could easily be okay got you all right yep so why bother to muffle a phone that was highly unlikely to ring at one in the morning perhaps as one student of the murders uh, uh, from a local university suggested for the same reason that the Velisca murderer took such great pains to cover the faces of his victims mm. and then went around the murder house carefully draping torn clothing and cloths all over the mirrors and all over the windows. Yeah. He did this maybe because he feared that his dead victims were somehow conscious of his presence. <sighs> Might the Ellsworth killer have covered the telephone out of the same desperate desire to ensure that nowhere in the murder house was a pair of eyes still watching him? Ooh. Even including his own inner reflection. Mm. Oh, okay. Now, it does give me vibes of Red Dragon, the Thomas yes. Harris book where mm -hmm. Ralph Fiennes plays a murderer um, who inserts pieces of broken mirror into his victim's eyes so he can see the reflection. It makes them feel like they're still alive. Cool. What a guy. Yeah. Oh, mate. I mean, he, he was also Voldemort. Spoiler alert. <laughs> he did not like mudbloods. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> yes, exactly where my mind went, Kate. 
I just recently saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. It's all I can think about. So, ah. so as soon as you mentioned that, I went down that path. Welcome to the uh, yeah conversation. <laughs> Welcome to the club of tired people that spent an entire work day's worth of hours at the theatre. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now that concludes... The actual story of the axe murder incident itself. We still okay. do not know who who done it. Oh, God. But. Okay. Oh, good. I told you that I was going to carry this on to modern day times and tell you yes. about the haunting of the Velisca axe murder house. Oh, my God. I love it. Okay. All right. Okay. I was disappointed for a moment because it turned into one of those, oh, who killed the person? And then you spend an hour and then they go, we still don't know. But that's okay, because now I want to hear about this haunting. Bring it on. Yeah. You know, I love a good mystery. So Absolutely. But I am trying to, and I'm always fascinated, and like I told you in the last episode, I'm hungry to be proven wrong when it okay. comes to the supernatural, because I find it fascinating, but I'm the world's biggest skeptic. But Great. I love that. And I'm on board, so I will back you up. If you think that it's a supernatural, I'm here for you. Well, I wanted to share and extend this story into modern day times. You can go visit this house. It is still standing. You can even stay there for the night if you so choose. You asked, you said to me at the start and I asked, would you stay there? And of course you would because that's your jam. Um, I can say now without a shadow of a doubt, get fucked. Yeah. I do not want to stay in that house. So I'm fine. Well, this might change your mind. Oh, no. I don't know that it will. <laughs> Hang on. Just to confirm, because my idea of like, you know, holiday hell is a shower curtain instead of a shower door. So I think we've surpassed <laughs> that in terms of uncomfort- uncomfortability in a place of accommodation. But hit me. Why, what's going to change my mind? Please. <laughs> okay. So this story is told from the point of view of uh, someone that works and manages the property currently. Great. Today. All like right. 2021, 2022, like now. Yeah. Great. Now, from his words, I got my job at the house not long after I'd moved to Villisca with my wife at the time. Every day I'd go for a walk and I'd see Darwin, the building's owner, out the front in his bib overalls working on the place. And I would just bombard him with questions. Okay, tell me the suspects. Okay, so go over the crime scene with me. One day, Darwin looked at me and said, you're here every single day. I may, may as well pay you to do something while you're here. Do you want a job? So I took right over the building's maintenance, the groundskeeping, the website, like it just kind of fell into my lap, which I loved. The clientele at the Velisca Axe Murder House ranges from young women who are really, really, really into true crime to lots of senior citizens who come here for, for a senior bus tours. We have a group of senior ladies that come down and try to figure out who the axe murderer was amongst themselves. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm just imagining a whole bunch of Jessica Fletchers. Yep. With their little, you know, three-piece suits and their little neckerchiefs and their notepads and their perms. Oh, bring it on. Their pearls and their walkers. (laughs) Now, we also get a lot of ghost hunters. I mean, 90% of our overnight clientele are paranormal investigators. Great. Now, the night in question that changed everything was in 2014. It started off like any normal night. I was in the barn, just waiting for the car to pull up. 
I saw the car stop and this gentleman walked towards the barn and I could see that he had a hunting knife attached to his belt. He was wearing camouflage pants, which is kind of normal attire around here, so I just shrugged and let him in. He seemed very normal to me. No red flags, really. My red flag was at first that he was there with his mum and his dad, but then instantly I'm like, don't be a jerk. Maybe that's their thing. He was probably, I'm guessing, in his 50s. They were quite elderly. Finally, he told me how he was going to give the house a piece of his mind. So I said, oh, okay, cool. Have fun with that. And I went home to bed. Oh, sorry. He says no red flags, okay? (laughs) Old mate is in his 50s with his mum and dad, which that's not a red flag in and of itself, but has a hunting knife attached to his camouflaged pants and then wants to give the house a piece of his mind. Nah, no red flags. I'm off home to bed. Have a fun time in the haunted (laughs) place. What a jackass. Now, the next morning, I woke up, picked up my phone, and I was tagged in a million things on social media. I saw all these headlines. Man stabs himself at the axe murder house. Oh, my God. I just couldn't believe it. I rushed over to the house where I made a couple of my, met a couple of my friends meet me. Sorry, I rushed over to the house where I made a couple of my friends meet me. Mm. English is not this guy's first language (laughs) just gonna say (laughs) i didn't want to be flying solo in a situation like that so we walked in and right on the floor in the kitchen was a blanket wrapped up and there was a little teddy bear foot sticking out of it now a lot of people bring teddy bears and dolls and stuff to leave as tokens for the kids so that was a bit normal but this teddy was all covered in blood And my first thought was, not again, not again, not in this house. I went in with a bottle of bleach and a towel because I'd seen that on The Sopranos and dumped bleach all over the floor and mopped the towel around with my foot. (laughs) How well did that turn out for The Sopranos? Like, holy shit. Don't get your crime scene cleaning tips from Tony and Chris Moltisanti. Just don't do it. Holy shit. At that point, the house's owner, Martha, came in and she was just crying. She was like, this is supposed to be fun. Should we just close? I told her we couldn't close. I told her that if we closed, people would say we had closed because the house was too haunted. And pretty soon we'd have people breaking in. So I told her, let's just keep going. All right. Can I pause you for one sec? So we've got the old mate with the hunting knife has knifed himself in this house right so he's come with mum and dad he's gone and he's knifed himself then i assume he's this um guy who runs the property has been tagged in all of these social media posts so i'm assuming he's able to go in there and pour bleach all over the floor because it's sometime after Mm -hmm. the cops and everyone have been there is that right yes so he's not just like (laughs) turning up as the cops are there trying to process a crime scene and just starts pouring bleach all over the floor like tony soprano Hmm. okay so it's a little bit after and now he's saying please don't shut this place down it's supposed to be fun a house where people were murdered horrifically with an axe it's supposed to be fun yep cool so they they kept on going so yep you know they didn't shut down uh he said he later found out that the gentleman with the hunting knife had been in the house by himself doing Mm. some sort of solo investigation in the kid's bedroom. 
And that's where the mum and dad found the knife shoved through their son's chest. Now, he'd been life flighted to a hospital in Omaha, Nebraska, and he'd survived. <gasps> oh! Now, that's all this guy knew. He says, I never heard anything more. I wanted to reach out to him, but I never did. And it wasn't until a few years later that I found out what had happened. Now, a TV show about paranormal activity was filming at the house. It was called Kindred Spirits. You can go watch it now. And the producers had convinced the knife guy to revisit the house. Oh. So one day I just walked into the barn where they had all their equipment and I saw the guy just sitting there in a chair and out loud I was like, you! I was shocked to see him. So I sat down and I said, I have a million questions for you. Oh my God. So this is the knife guy. Mm. He's sitting in the barn with his tally crew stuff. Oh, no. okay. He said he'd try to answer as best he could so I told him that my first question was why he bought a knife. Mm. Now, he told me he usually carried concealed handguns, but he didn't know the laws in Iowa, so he thought he'd just bring a knife instead. Look, judgments okay. aside, you have to understand, <laughs> Kate and I are from the country of Australia where gun laws are incredibly strict, and we're insanely proud of that. Yeah. Um, Politics aside, we have to remember that, yeah, carrying a gun or carrying a knife is probably pretty commonplace at the States, yeah, as you okay. and I have witnessed and seen from our many troubles there. But we have, yes. People like you and I, I don't want to speak for you, Kate, but for people like you and I, we just think it's absurd. Yeah. No, but I agree. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Now, he told uh, his next question was, um, uh, what happened obviously mm. like tell yeah. me <laughs> how did this happen how now, did you end up with a knife in your chest yes. like <laughs> that's a pretty hot topic hot button question yeah now he says he told me he'd been alone in the bedroom provoking trying to get the ghosts to come at him then he said he woke up in the emergency room and didn't remember a thing at that point, he started crying really hard. He told me that it's just completely ruined his life. Everybody thought he was crazy or thought he was after money or to be on a TV show. And he just said that he wanted to finally tell his side of the story so people wouldn't think he was insane. Mm -hmm. What really struck me was that when we all walked into the house together, he was right next to me. And the first thing he did when he walked into the house was apologize. He apologized for getting loud and apologized for yelling and screaming and doing the come at me bro stuff. Mm. I could hear the shakiness in his voice and he was saying it looking up at the ceiling and I was just thinking this is so weird, so bizarre. Now after the incident in 2014, I've never really spent the night at the house again. I'm just kind of done with staying the night at the Axe house. I'm never going to say a ghost stabbed him. Come on, let's get real. But maybe there is something in that house that preys on people that are mentally ill mm. or n not rooted in any kind of faith or protection. I want zero to do with any of that. And that is the end of my Velisca Axe Murder house and haunting story. Yeah. Oh, Dom, that was great. I love it. And I really want to investigate more of that supernatural. <gasps> Ooh. 
Yes, it is quite what a popular a destination, story. as you can imagine. Like, yeah, it's a famous story. People don't know who's done it, which always carry makes these things linger a little bit further. Um, mm. uh, and we like to bring things back to pop culture. So there is a movie that a you movie? can watch. I love it, movies. Is it the lead. Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No, not Chainsaw Axe Murderers, whatever. The <laughs> so, so my mum married an axe murderer. Isn't that some sort of shit film? But we're not. Yeah, sorry. You go. Yeah. I digress. No, you got it nail on the head. It is called The Velisca Axe Murders. Um, okay. Something along those lines. It will be on our social so you can see the poster as we are now doing Movie Mondays. Movie Monday of the week. Or Love it. Monday Movie of the week. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so look out for that. But um, funny you mentioned Texas Chainsaw Massacre, though, Kate, because that is one of my favorite all time, all time, all time. It's probably one of the only horror movies that I've ever gotten fully scared. Yeah, because so I, I remember put that, that on my list. I think that's why I put that at like the top of my list for the scariest. Because I remember that you watched that when you were young, like you were like maybe thirteen, fourteen. I want to say because I reckon I was probably about nine or ten when you would tell. Not tell stories about the movie to, to frighten me, but just like say that you had seen it because you were such a movie buff and you still are. But that was one of those things where I was like, if Dom thinks that's like the scariest, then that's way out of my league. That's that's it. That's the one. Yeah, I might, have to, I might have to do. I know there's 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 a lot of folklore and there's a lot of uh, you know fairy tale history about texas chainsaw massacre but because i lived in texas mm. and i have like i think i have an affinity for it and i watched it and you know yeah, i just have a connection awesome. to it but it's a yeah i think i'll have to do that at some point so stay tuned for that but anyway yeah. that's my story thanks for listening that was amazing thank you so much for, for that that was so good and thank you to our listeners for joining i think i'm definitely uh on the supernatural bandwagon at the moment so i feel like it would be silly for me not to touch on aliens at some point um so we might look at some aliens for the next episode and certainly something around the supernatural vibe so if that's something that you're into please listen if you're not into it listen anyway we don't care we just want you to hear us and uh yeah right in right into our socials we love hearing from you as well actually i've got a, I do have a couple of shout outs that we'll we will save for the next step because i want to give it the time it deserves but uh we'll certainly be yeah calling out a few of our friends lovely cannot wait for that all right kate that was a long one so go rest relax your ears oh listeners. no i just need to fill up my wine again my wine's been empty for at least half an app. <laughs> <laughs> lock your doors all right lovely great to hear from you and i will speak to you very soon and thank you all for listening see you later Bye. that's a wrap big shout out to everyone for tuning in to shit and bricks don't forget to subscribe rate and review us plus you can find extra little nuggets on our socials next week we'll be back talking more shit so do not forget to tune in and remember to wipe flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.